Welcome to the 18th episode of the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. Today's episode is a Q&A with Michael and I. Uh, so this question is from uh, at Pat Miller Time. And he asks, what do you find more likely as the instigator of hyper-Bitcoinization? Individuals that want hard money or central banks that need a gold-like hedge to price target their fiat? I basically see a few schools of thought forming. Safedine with individuals organically fleeing to hard money versus Jaw slash Juice. Uh, so side note, Jaw slash Juice, uh, he's, he's been trolling me on Twitter. Uh, he's a huge fan of uh, John Nash and his monetary theories. But uh, close that side note. Uh, central banks switch to Bitcoin reserves versus payments to adoption premise uh all of the above um, so i actually i don't think it's just jail slash juice that's talking about central banks uh our friend chiefy who was on noted was talking about central banks uh not switching to bitcoin reserves but at least like putting some percentage in right uh you know that that hedged uh price target or I guess a hedge against their own money, or in the case of the the banks that uh, Chiefy was hoping to um, work with, uh, hedge against the the currencies that they're trying to peg themselves to, like the United States dollar. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so they they hold these portfolios of of foreign currencies. Uh, to it, like I think that the most for the most part they're. They're waiting for a crisis to happen, and then they intervene by selling the foreign currency to buy their domestic currency to prop up its value in the uh, international forex markets. Um, so uh, the question is, uh, what's the more likely instigator? I mean, I, instinctively, I just want to say like all of the above, right? Okay. Um, yeah. But but th I think that's also that's kind of um, that's kind of unrealistic because. It's definitely the case that thus far it's been entirely driven by individuals mm -hmm. uh, and we haven't even really seen like any uh, central bank buying overtly. Uh, we, we've heard people share rumors of. Yeah, yeah, of course, you know, uh, I, I recall IMF headlines um, where there was sort of reference to the notion that perhaps the bank could be purchasing some of these cryptocurrencies you know and then there's also the the sort of subversive element of bitcoin uh which is that the central banks will start adopting bitcoin via the individuals within the central banks hodling for themselves right they're going they're going to front run their institution like if they see, oh, we just had a, uh, a committee meeting, you know, they've got to have like 20 committee meetings, I'm sure, before they uh, even buy a new desk. Uh, so uh, the word would get out that, hey, we're <laughs> about to buy some Bitcoins. If you're smart, uh, you should definitely add it to your retirement account. Yeah, well, and in fact, I would, if I was in that situation, I would keep the committee meetings going so I could continue to buy up more and more before the price goes up. If the Federal Reserve were to say that they're buying any amount of Bitcoin, uh, the price would likely skyrocket. So you would definitely want to front run that by many, many miles. For sure. For sure. Um, all right. So I, I think that answers that question. Did you have anything else on that? 
I guess the first question is like, will there be a main event, you know, like a, a real revelation moment, or will it be this uh, always be a sort of slow organic process? And if there is that much more rapid event, will one of these do you think be a major part? And I do think I mean, it's it's hard to say, like, I, I think I think the individual organic growth can <laughs> could be, you know, pretty powerful on its own. Yeah. Well, I, I would add like a third option here. So we have individuals, which is basically like retail investors buying on Coinbase uh, and then central banks. Uh, there's also large portfolio investors, let's call them institutional investors or ultra high net worth individuals, the George Soroses of the world who I and this was kind of what I was talking about in my speculative attack article would borrow against their other assets to and borrow from fractional reserve banks so that they create new fiat and then go buy Bitcoins and essentially uh, get into a positive feedback loop of fractional reserve banks printing money and the value of Bitcoin going up. Um, so that would be that would be the third thing, which I actually think is, is what's going to be like the main event. Granted, it might take a few um, attacks for it to actually like break through the wall of fiat. You got to have some practice rounds. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that we've seen it on a small scale. Well, you're here like a retail person being like, oh, I, I borrowed against my house, you know, which is a terrible idea. Please don't do that. But but it technically is, you know, effectively a, an attempt at a speculative attack. Yeah, it, it's just it's just not a good idea because you have to live somewhere. Whereas George Soros doesn't really have to like live in his fiat portfolio of government bonds or whatever else he's borrowing against, which he would have to surrender if the price tanked. All right. So is inflation meant to this is from Bitcoin Banksy. That's uh, at BTC B-A-N-K-S-Y. Uh, is inflation meant to be a control mechanism? And what are the effects of replacing this mechanism with strict deflation? So what I assume he what he means is is getting at um, a notion that the the government uses inflation as a way to um, control people's behaviors. I, I think that sort of thing is likely more of an effect than a cause of these things. I mean, quite frankly, the you know if we do Occam's razor, you know, kind of kind of thinking, inflation is really just a way for the government to steal wealth um, and redistribute it from less politically connected people to more politically connected people. So, uh, you know, if if you read Saifedean's book, you can get a real sense of all of the terrible downstream effects of um, this on society and human behavior in general. But I, 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 I don't tend to take an immediate conspiratorial view beyond they just want money and power. Well, yeah, and I, I think that they have the view, too, that Hey, if if the fractional reserve banking system can create more money than and lend it out to productive businesses, uh, that will boost economic growth. Oh, and they probably literally believe that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, granted, like there's plenty of grifters on the inside who are uh, taking uh, you know seniorage from that, but. Uh, I think that their, their heart's in the right place for the most part. <laughs> That's not to say there haven't been 
creepy, you know, uh, stuff around the the founding of the Federal Reserve. You know, I oh yeah, Rothbard has has great stuff on that. Um, but you know, I, I I think you know, with that in mind, you also have to consider that they can only inflate to a certain point, and we know this. For sure, because, you know, if, if you can just take money, why would you not take more? And it's because if you do it too fast, people kind of catch on and there is a crack up boom. Um, so they only do what they can get away with. Um, so as far as like replacing this mechanism with strict deflation, it's not only that the governments will have a choice um, around this. They'll just realize that if we don't finally stop this madness, uh, we go out of business. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh and we've seen we've seen crack up booms happen uh and it definitely shows the limits of their ability. So for example, like during the 70s inflation went into the double digits and it seemed to be getting out of control and then they had to like really reduce the increase in the money supply and so Paul Volcker raised interest rates to reestablish their credibility. So I think that the effects of replacing a inflationary fractional reserve banking system uh, with a deflationary 100% reserve system, uh, the primary effect just mechanically is that uh, now people have to actually lend money out in order for people to be able to borrow it. So I think that interest rates would be higher than what we've, well, certainly what we've been recently experiencing, but also I think higher than what we've been experiencing since essentially the invention of fractional reserve banking. I think fractional reserve banking created like a, a structural uh, subsidy for uh, specifically bank loans and uh, bank interest rates. And so it'll be interesting to see how that actually functions in the free market. Absolutely. Uh, people, people should check out um, Guido Holzman on on some of these topics as well. He did a great interview on Tom Woods recently. Yeah, and he also has a very good lecture uh, that was recorded at the Mises Institute on the ethics of money production. And basically, like you can watch this, you can watch it in an hour. But if you turn on the YouTube, like times one point five. You can probably watch in 45 minutes or however the math works out. Uh, and, totally worth it. And then you don't have to read the book because he lays everything out. It's a really fantastic book, though. So, Yeah, you should read the book anyway, but you know how these young millennials are. It made me double down on Bitcoin. I am not even kidding. Like I, I, I read the book and um, it, it totally solidified all of my, my love of Bitcoin. You know, I, I should add that as a Bitcoin investment thesis. Ethical production of money. Oh, just like wanting to impose ethics on the world. Yeah, it could be a its own distinct category of why someone is investing in Bitcoin. It's just I want to make a positive impact on the world. Yeah, or or thinking that like it's other people do, and thus that makes it a good investment because if other people want to do this, they're going to put money. Ah, yes. Right. Well, because if 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 only one person actually wanted an ethical money, then it wouldn't happen. Right. Um, all right. Let's skip this one. Um, at Adam Paul Moore uh, asks, what asset allocation percentage is appropriate for Bitcoin? 
This one's very controversial. Uh, 150%. So go put all of your money in it and then uh, start, you know, selling drugs on Silk Road and uh, prostitution is possibly a good option to get more Bitcoins. But um, And get creative, like sell a kidney, mortgage a house that's not yours. It happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, if it gets if it gets foreclosed, just you know, uh, just walk away. Send them a sorry <laughs> for your loss letter. Um, now, but more more seriously, I think that the the advice has always been uh, only put what you can afford to lose, which I, I see as kind of like a throwaway soundbite. That's not really useful because that's really true of. Even holding dollars, I would argue, mm-hmm. or holding any kind of asset or investments, at some point it's like, okay, well, should I just consume everything I make because I don't want to risk ever losing anything from holding it? Anything. I mean, you're you're basically getting to this. Any entrepreneurial act is a speculative act. So uh, if you're you know purely trying to avoid risk, uh, the only way to do that is to kill yourself, um, which I also do not recommend. So. Uh, the 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 twist on that that I tell people, and of course you being from a financial background, um, have a lot more you know uh, insight to offer people. But the way I I frame it um, isn't quite that. What I tell people is just like uh, invest you know the amount that you don't lose sleep over. Like you should never lose sleep over your hodlings. <laughs> um, and if you do lose sleep, you should sell some. Yeah, I think that. That's definitely a really important heuristic, which is don't ruin your life over an investment. Like that's, uh, and even like losing sleep, but also just, yeah, I mean, I, let's take it metaphorically, right? Which is just being anxious about uh, your investment. Practically speaking, uh, you have to think about, okay, if, if Bitcoin were to suddenly implode and go to $0, what is my situation? And that's where I think it makes sense to have like a fiat reserve at the very least cash reserve uh, so that you can wait out a, a bear market. But uh, generally, so when people think about asset allocation, you have to think about what is my risk tolerance and what is my investment horizon? So if you're investing for the next six months, uh you really should put 0% in Bitcoin because Bitcoin could go down 50%, uh, you know, in the next six months. Like that's not, it could go down more than that. But um, so you need to put that in a savings account at the bank because you're going to need that money in six months. Now, if your investment horizon is 30 years, now you can start thinking a little more aggressively in terms of your risk taking because even if you get wiped out over the next, like let's say Bitcoin goes to zero dollars in one year, uh, you still have 29 years to uh, build your savings back up and uh, invest in other things. Um, but regardless, uh, I think that you've, you've got to diversify, not with shit coins, uh, but with, I think with stocks uh, is a good way to diversify. Um, and then the problem becomes like, Okay, but if Bitcoin goes up 10x or 100x, do I rebalance and sell Bitcoins to buy more stocks? And I, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I, I think it's up to your risk tolerance. Yeah, and also, you know, just uh, you know, 
what I, what you actually value in life. Um, I think a couple important points that need to be made because I, I I do see this mindset a lot um, when when you were delineating the different types of maximalism, you know, and of course we're money maximalists above all else. Uh, there is this strand of what I call portfolio maximalists, which are people who have begun to think that being a Bitcoin maximalist requires putting as much of your portfolio um, into Bitcoin uh, as possible. But this negates the subjective theory of value. Um, and, you know, maybe you just want other things. You know, the purpose of money is to be able to hedge against future uncertainty. If you already know exactly what you want, then of course, you're going to you know, be investing less in Bitcoin. Like maybe all you wanted was that Lambo. Um, and once you get it, you have no need for that Bitcoin. I, I hope you have other values, but that's also, you know, it's free world. It's your choice. And Well, let's take the example of like Peter Thiel. Like he could put $50 million in Bitcoin. What what does he get out of putting another 50 million in? Like it's it's not like it's a life changing like if Bitcoin goes up 10x and whether he has 500 million dollars or a billion dollars, I don't think that really moves the needle for it wouldn't move the needle for me. I, I don't know if it would for him. I'm not saying that I'm like massively wealthy. I'm just saying that I don't have other ways of spending money where like I would go hog wild. I can definitely think of ways. Uh, I I can think of how uh, Peter Thiel should spend his money, um, and he's always welcome to call me up. I will tell him exactly what to do. Um, so I do hope that whatever he's doing, he gets the more money because I can tell him how to use it. But um, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's like diminishing marginal returns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, for one, you know, he got rid of Gawker you know, what's next? Like, we need to start going after, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, just work our way up to the very top. Um. <laughs> yeah, he's got to he's got to put capital towards noble causes like that as well. Um, or, or even just like in the case of Jack Dorsey, like funding lightning network development. And so then you get into the question of, all right, do you put 100% into Bitcoin? And 0% towards any development activity, or even if if not monetary, like your time, mm -hmm. uh, do you spend all your time trying to make as much fiat so that you can maximize the number of Bitcoins you buy? Or do you spend your time trying to maximize the value of Bitcoin or maximize the uh, contribution you're making to Bitcoin by building things? Yeah. So I guess the, the ultimate answer to this is I, I can't tell you that. You know, I can't tell you how much to allocate into Bitcoin, but it's it's a much more complicated uh, question than than simply like, should I put all my money into Bitcoin and do everything I can to get the most Bitcoins? It's much more complicated than that. Yeah, I, I would like to someone who is asking this question, I would say like one percent <laughs> because they're asking the ask. question, right? <laughs> if you have to ask yeah, the question, if you have to ask. <laughs> You should only put one percent. Uh, is is my view on that? Not 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 to be like uh, not to be mean to Adam or anything. I'm just that's just where my head's yeah. at. Uh, the last the last bit of bit of advice is you know I have to say like every single Bitcoiner has his regret story of oh I could have bought Bitcoin at this time and I didn't. Um, and you can't not have that regret. And there's 
even in the future, like you're going to feel like, oh, I, I got that much, but I could have gotten more. Um, one thing to also just keep yourself sane is remember that when hyper-Bitcoinization happens, you do at least get to uh, live in a Bitcoin world. And even if you don't have all the Bitcoins, uh, that world is likely to be a much more economically productive world uh, that has more to offer you. Um, so don't despair. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The next question is from at I wear a hoodie. Uh, if you had to choose between receiving your salary in Ethereum or USD, which would you choose? If I'm going to hold bags, I'm going to hold the same bags as the Monopoly guy. Yeah, So, but this is an interesting question because my immediate reaction is like, well, I have a USD bank account that's connected to Bitcoin exchanges. So practically speaking, but really, I mean, Bitcoin exchanges nowadays, they all like trade Ethereum. So I could receive Ethereum on directly on the Bitcoin exchange. Um, there's that in terms of like the ease with which I could convert it into Bitcoin. The other thing, though, is that, and I, I, I was talking about this earlier today, Dogecoin has outperformed the dollar. Like, <laughs> the dollar is the ultimate trash shit coin out there. And basically anything is better than that, including Vitalik's, like, nonsense token. So Ethereum might actually be the right answer here um, from the perspective of, like, Hey, even Ethereum has a better monetary policy than the US dollar. Yeah, the only problem is, uh, you know, we still don't know, for instance, what the SEC is going to do with regards. There's only some, you know, speculative comments. So that, that could that could present a, a uh, problem where it's much more difficult to uh, interface with Ethereum. Uh, might not actually like, shut down. It's. It, it might, yeah, it might definitely uh, impair the value of it somehow. I don't think the government's going to be able to shut down Bitcoin. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't invest in it. If the government like made it very hard to trade Bitcoins in the U.S., I think the value would at least temporarily go down. Uh, 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 agreed. I just like as far as the government's ability to do that between the two of those, I think Ethereum is a much more uh, probable chance. Um, yeah, but I also like the government will definitely not be shutting down the US dollar until they have to. So, right. I don't know. That's that actually it is an interesting question from that perspective. I, I think it's more of like a, a religious thing of just, you know, wanting to stay away from haram shit coins. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially I, I had someone send us a Litecoin as as a donation to the noted podcast and Downloading the Litecoin client was very psychologically challenging for me, um, but I can't even imagine downloading <laughs> something like Ethereum. That would just be a bridge too far for me. Um, okay, so next question. What is the most effective elevator pitch you've used to persuade a new hodler? Um, I think, I mean, the, the digital gold thesis is probably the most effective uh, short explanation for Bitcoin and why it's good. Um, and part of the reason, uh, I remember actually someone asking me about this on Twitter. I think it's very, I, I think the basics of money and monetary policy are actually very accessible to people. 
Um, it's just that the system is set up in a way to kind of obfuscate this and make it seem difficult to understand. Because like you, you try to understand the Federal Reserve, you're going to have a hard time. But the actual just basics of if I if I'm holding a money and then someone adds new units, the value of that money goes down. That's very easy for people to grasp and people intuitively get, you know, the value of gold uh, within that regard. So then when you can describe it as a gold 2.0 and and bring in this sort of, you know, the, the digital nature of it, people know that the the internet is this big thing you should check it out that that seems to be an effective thing for people yeah i agree with that i also i don't know that i've ever persuaded a new hodler i feel like i just preach to the choir on twitter right and then conversations i have in person it's like this person was either already on board with bitcoin and already owns some or they are already vehemently opposed to it I, I don't know that I've I've ever had like a, you know, one time conversation where I want someone over, but I'm just the kind of person who just like memes something over and over. And like, I only have the the few things I want to talk about Bitcoin and meat and basically nothing else. And you talk about it long enough and people just submit to the memes. Um, and over time, I've I, I've had people who it's just chipped away over time to the point where they text me and tell me like, oh, now, you know, Two percent of my uh, portfolio is in Bitcoin now. After like months of arguing about Bitcoin, it just they they can't they can't fight it. You you know what? Now, now that I think about it, um, I think the most effective ele- elevator pitch is, hey, you know that thing last time we talked about was at three hundred dollars. It's at six thousand dollars now, and they're like, uh, my favorite part of doing that, by the way is not telling them the highs. So like, I don't tell them that it went to, to 20,000 and then went back down. I just remind them, I, I only tell them, hey, it's gone up, you know, 2,000%. Very effective. Um, all right. Uh, this is, oh, sorry. That last question was from at the flam cake. Thanks for the question. Okay, this question is from uh, Coco. I don't know if you guys follow Coco on Twitter. Uh, he's at Coco the ape child and i i i love his uh his twitter um avatar is like this crazy he looks like sasquatch it's like a weird caveman child sasquatch yeah he's one of my favorite twitter people and he only has 713 followers so definitely go follow coke at coco that's k-o-k-o the ape child uh anyway his question is effect of Microsoft purchasing GitHub on Bitcoin. Um, so I don't think that's going to have any effect, to be honest. Microsoft has a terrible, terrible reputation that it earned over the past 30 years. Uh, but they've actually evolved a lot over the past. And, well, whenever the latest CEO took over, Satya Nadella, and they want to be like very open source friendly and developer friendly. They're not like Steve Ballmer faking being developer friendly by yelling at a crowd about it. Uh, they're actually taking actions by open sourcing things and working on open source projects. They're also the largest GitHub user. So I think that's actually why they bought it. They were like, this is already like part of our infrastructure now. Uh, we're just going to take it over so that we can prioritize our own uh, needs. So 
arguably like that would be bad if they prioritize their own needs over the needs of open source projects. But GitHub has done a terrible job at catering to open source projects. So I don't see how it could get any worse. Yeah, I mean, the, the big question is just like, I mean, I guess GitHub addressed this, but will we see the pink unicorn more or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they, they say that, that that's like fixed permanently. I've seen it once since they fixed it. So it's clearly gotten a lot better. Yeah, for, for listeners that don't know. So uh, on GitHub, if there's too much load on the server or, you know, there's just general server problems going on, uh, there's a page with a pink unicorn that comes up and it basically tells you that, you know, you can't access things right now. The weird thing for it is I think it was a front end bug because there were front end workarounds to it. Uh, and so I think that they had like a, it was like timing out too soon or something uh, in the load. But anyway, I don't want to denigrate GitHub's support for open source too much because they provide this for free for all these projects. And it is a tremendously useful resource that has a great API. So, And of course, there's, there's other options. But uh, at the same time, like I think GitHub really changed the landscape of open source. Uh, we have to give them credit where credit is due. Yeah. And people are, I think people more easily contribute to a project that's on GitHub than if it's anywhere else. So if we want to make sure that we have the most contributors and eventually the highest quality contributors, uh, I think having Bitcoin on GitHub is a good idea. Um, all right. This question is for Michael. What's your favorite organ meat? <laughs> uh, well, I actually haven't uh, explored organ meats too much, but uh, I do enjoy well, I've, I've started to enjoy eating liver on occasion. Yeah, I, I haven't experimented with organ meat much either. Um, I did have liver a while ago and my wife wasn't a huge fan, so we haven't had it since. It's it's a very strong taste. Um, it's taken me getting used to. Um, yeah. But you know, it is what it is. I really does bone marrow count as organ meat? Okay, look, you know, if you ask me, technically muscle is an organ too, so I consider steaks organ meat. Right. You know, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. We're having an anatomy class here. Um, all right. So next question. This is from Shilly McBTC. Shill Billy McBTC. Okay. That's a really good Twitter handle. Uh, would BTC still hold a store value competitive advantage over USD if it is inflated at the same supply halvening schedule post 2020? Could USD monetary policy be brought in line with BTC supply schedule to minimize effects of hyper Bitcoinization? So basically, if in 2020 uh, we we no longer have halvenings. And we have permanent inflation. Oh, I took it as the opposite. I took it as if the dollar were to start only inflating at the rate that Bitcoin is. Oh, oh, okay, okay, yeah. So this, that's okay. That's much more interesting. Um, yeah. If let's read the second part of that. Like, could USD monetary policy be brought in line with Bitcoin supply schedule to minimize effects of hyper Bitcoinization? Can the Federal Reserve? Oh, sorry. This is me adding. Basically, can the Federal compete with Bitcoin. Yeah, so uh, at the New York City lecture where Safedine was talking, someone asked him like, oh, how are central banks going to clamp down on Bitcoin? And he was like, 
Well, the, the best way for them to clamp down would be to compete with Bitcoin by having a better monetary policy than their current one. And so I definitely agree that if, if the USD uh, had money supply targeting and adopted the... And honestly, it wouldn't even have to be as stringent as Bitcoin's. Mm-hmm. It would just have to be like in the same ballpark. And yeah, I think that that would... That would actually prevent hyper Bitcoinization from happening. Here's my here's my own question for that though. If it did, what would be the short term effects on the economy, and would that sort of uh, deflationary period deflation in this sense of like just yeah, you know, the market returning to order after so much inflation of the supply in that thing would people run to a different money? To, to avoid these things. And so if you have like maybe Bitcoin would still do pretty well just by not being this thing that people because there, there's so much stuff baked into uh, the dollar now, you know, like it's not really correlated with actual wealth in the world. I think that it I mean, it, it would have a very catastrophic effect on the financial system if the Fed were to adopt money supply targeting and uh, stop raising interest rates. Um, or sorry, not target interest rates and allow interest rates to go up or down just based on their necessity of targeting the money supply. Um, but the the other complexity there is that the USD's monetary system is based on fractional reserve banking. And so new USD gets created when loans are made from the banking system and thus... The only way you could target money supply is by trying to uh, affect the market for lending uh, with interest rates. And even that's imperfect. Like, so at some point you have to get involved with like forcing banks to lend or forcing them not to lend uh, so that you can target a specific money supply. Um, Now, granted, there are proposals for separating the credit system from the payment system and having 100% reserve fiat. One is called the Chicago Plan. And in 2012, there was actually a paper written about it called the Chicago Plan Revisited uh, that was very favorable to the idea of doing 100% reserve backing for fiat deposits. And so if they combined that with money supply targeting that was like Bitcoins, uh, then I think they would have something really competitive, especially... If then they go into the payment system and make it so that you can send payments through the Federal Reserve for free instantly. It is a centralized system after all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they don't they, they could subsidize it uh, pretty easily or or just charge like a de minimis amount. And it is very easy to like build a system like this, like Visa or MasterCard, except that it is final settlement and it's cleared by the Federal Reserve. Uh, and then you could buy your coffee using your Federal Reserve debit card. Yeah. Now, I think it's important to say that, uh, you know, there's a reason we want Bitcoin. And it's because even if this were to happen, it'd be good for us. Or actually, maybe not us because of these short term things. It'd be good for our children. But there's basically no guarantee that it's not going to happen again. And in fact, given history, it is going to happen again. I can basically guarantee it. 
um, I would be surprised if it didn't happen again. For sure. I mean, it, it would be it would be totally bizarre to me that uh, there is a significant political will to implement this this different uh, system, and I, it just it do, the the I don't even think like the the game theory works out uh, for that at all. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason why we have to burn massive amounts of electricity to have a sound money. That's a very good point of yours. Yes. People can't help themselves. Like they just want to print money. So um, while we're talking about hypotheticals, like these are wildly unrealistic. Let's not kid yeah. ourselves. <laughs> uh, the government's not going to be like, hey, let's uh, let's have an ultrasound money and let's not uh, inflate and benefit ourselves in the short run at the expense of the long run. I think... If there was ever that political will, um, it would be too late. In fact, that would be that would be sort of the sign that hyperbitcoinization is has like finished off because it's like this last gasp by a, a dying political order. Yeah, or or they are um, they are submitting to Bitcoin and are explicitly targeting Bitcoin, and so essentially it's just it's just a pegged currency they're becoming the bitcoin standard yeah exactly yeah um <laughs> you didn't you didn't fire us we quit <laughs> yeah exactly but joined you at the same time <laughs> all right i'm gonna skip this long question here and what bitcoin movement affects the price online exchange peer-to-peer -peer like local bitcoin or peer-to-peer -peer on the street <laughs> or <laughs> all three. Uh, I think it's on the street. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't see it. I don't. I don't see why there's any difference between those those three. Um, yeah. I mean, look, like price. The price is affected when either demand goes up or demand goes down. Um, and each of those cases are a location where, where people express their desire to sell or buy, and it affects the price. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question is from Dave Harding at HRDNG. He was our first guest on the Noted podcast. So go back to that episode and give it a listen. And, and absolutely follow him. Yeah, follow him on Twitter, too. He's uh, definitely one of the most knowledgeable, humble, and eloquent uh, Bitcoiners, OG Bitcoiners out there. Uh, and he asks, what do you think advocates of the segregated witness soft fork could have done better when they were initially communicating about it in late 2015, early 2016? Or more practically, what items related to communication do you think should be on a checklist for advocates of the next major soft fork, if there ever is another major soft fork? So full disclosure, uh, when I first heard about segregated witness, I was against any capacity increase. And so I was against segregated witness uh, for that reason. <laughs> so I guess what you could have... What, what the advocates could have done better would have been hiding the fact that it's a capacity increase and uh, lying to me about that. And then I would have been more persuaded by the uh, removing the uh, transaction malleability 
Um, but even the transaction malleability, like the main selling point was, was to enable Lightning Network, right? And uh, I was skeptical about Lightning Network as well. So uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's a similar answer to mine in the sense that, I mean, I remember I, I was somewhat in the same boat, uh, but at the same time, I also, I don't automatically get excited about new things in Bitcoin, new new proposals. You know, I, I actually like Lightning Network as an example. For the longest time, I, you know, I thought of it as vaporware and I, I heavily dislike when people treat something as a solution before it actually exists. So like before Lightning Network, like now we're starting to see the actual proliferation of Lightning Network. Uh, but before then, you know, it was just something that people talked about, but they talked about it as though decentralized payment network on top of Bitcoin like already exists. Um, and it didn't. It was it was nothing. Um, so I was, I was a bit bothered by that. But um, yeah, I, I, I sort of agree in the sense that um, I, I have to imagine there's there's more to transaction malleability than just uh, more to segue than just oh. transaction malleability. That's like one thing. Yeah, I think it opens up a lot of future development work. Yeah, especially for instance, like the the soft fork being able to turn into a soft fork. Now we have a a mechanism by which we can do more soft forks, which I know is actually kind of a controversial thing, but that's it's interesting um, to think that you know Schnorr signatures will you know one day be proposed and like as as like a real thing that you can integrate into your full node, um, and it'll be opt in. You know, just like Segwit is this. You know, opt-in feature where if you don't like if you don't like Segwit, you won't even see it. But uh, yeah, I, I think from my perspective, I almost feel like the the scaling debate was sort of a, a trap with regards to Segwit in the sense that there's so much more development stuff, which I guess is not at the time it sort of came out of the scaling debate, but the people who you're arguing against with regards to Bitcoin, uh, SegWit helps scale Bitcoin, they're not going to be happy with any capacity increase that SegWit is able to give. And so it's sort of a, a rhetorical trap with those specific people. Um, so I think the more interesting thing is like, what are the actual technical things it allows and perhaps reframe scaling as more than just the capacity. It's like SegWit helps scale not only because it gives us a little more capacity and room, but also gives us uh, gets rid of transaction malleability and gives us these other ways uh, by which we can scale Bitcoin infrastructure. Yeah, agree. Uh, and so what items related to communication do you think should be on a checklist for advocates of the next major software? So I think that the number one item would be a series of hats from Samson. Yeah, it took way too long that time. Yeah, and well, actually, no, so this is an interesting question, and uh, we talked about this with uh, Johnny Dilly, which is, should the next soft fork just do away with miner activation and just be user activated and make it clear to the miners that they don't really have a say in things? Right, instead of waiting for them, just UASF immediately. Yeah. So that though, but anyway, that doesn't really answer uh, David's question, right? Because then you you have the you have the problem of like I've I've updated my node, but how do I communicate? Or I'm going to update my node at a certain block, but how am I going to communicate to others that 
this is what they also that's that's inherent in the fact that we're talking about a shelling point so one of one of the key properties of a shelling point is that you have the inability to communicate with other people and i think that you know people think that oh well you can just communicate on twitter but as as a certain number of skeptics are quick to point out that can easily be sibled uh and that's entirely correct which is why I think that Bitcoin is a shelling point, is that even if you think you can communicate, you don't know if you're being civil or not uh, on social media or uh, on Reddit or wherever it may be. So at the end of the day, you just got to show up with your node and see who else shows up with you. Uh, And if that's enough to uh, be the quote unquote economic majority. Yeah. And I suppose if you're just uncertain about if you've actually chosen the right thing, hold off on transactions for a bit and wait until you get. And run both nodes and just uh, see how things shake out. Thank you, Dave, for bringing us the, the hardest question, of course. Yeah. <laughs> he, in parentheses, he says, if there ever is another major soft fork, uh, and I kind of see it as like an inevitability that there there will be. Well, I mean, I don't know if there'll be as major as SegWit. Uh, SegWit was a big architectural change. Right. And there's also like SegWit came in this time that was like a major divide in the community itself, like very different competing visions of Bitcoin. Yeah. But now, that, you know, it split off and then, you know, Bitcoin Cash hard forked and, you know, doesn't even have SegWit they get to explore their own vision of cryptocurrency with their with their coin um and we no longer have that same conflict within the community and yeah i mean for instance like you know when someone shows up with the schnorr implementation that's you know ready for review and ready to go i have a hard time imagining that the community would be as uh, conflicted about it yeah, I agree. Um, and then the other thing, too, is like m- maybe something that would help in terms of communication is that people don't have insight into what the backlog of improvements to Bitcoin is. And so at at the very top of the funnel, you have like basic research going on uh, and the mainstream Bitcoiner does not know what like research is going on. Well, this is a, this is a good point. And, you know, I, I constantly you, you were sharing uh, a mailing list email very hard. And I really liked it. It was like, you know, some I, I apologize. I don't remember who it was, but he collected. Was it AJ Towns? It was someone. And God bless him. He basically made a very nice summary of all of the sort of things on the docket that different people are working on. And this is actually making me want... Yeah, I want to just make it clear. It, it was AJ. Yeah. Thank you, AJ. <laughs> Mast slash Schnorr related soft forks. I'll put it in the show notes. So, you know, one of the one of the interesting things, so we, we've talked about this on the show before. There is no, uh, I think it was with John Newberry, there is no Bitcoin Core roadmap. In fact, if like if there was a Bitcoin road, uh, Bitcoin Core roadmap, it would negate the ethos and like uh, nature of Bitcoin Core. But what could be interesting this is just me throwing out an idea. You know, as far as communication goes, instead of as Bitcoin Core as a roadmap, um, if individual contributors to Bitcoin Core and other projects 
could, you know, publish what their specific list of tasks that they want to get to are. You could have sort of like a, a cloud roadmap kind of thing where you go to a page and you get to see like these are the kinds of things that Matt Corallo has his mind set on right now and is working towards. And here's what, you know, Alex Morcos is doing. And here's what AJ Towns is doing. And here's what John Newberry is doing. So you kind of get this bigger sense of where the community is headed. I think that would, that would help communicate, you know, just a lot about, you know, where, where things are going in Bitcoin. Yeah. Although I, I don't know how many of the Bitcoin core contributors have even an individual roadmap i think that i mean they have like research projects that they're hacking away on and trying different you know maybe they're implementing it in elements or uh on their own um but uh and there's also the issue of dependencies right so you might have like okay for me to do this i need to have this other soft fork already implemented um, so that would be interesting for people to see that like, hey, this soft fork might sound boring, but it unlocks all these other things. Right. Here's like all of, if you get this soft fork, here's all the other things that these developers were thinking about that you could add on once you have that. So, for instance, like once you have SegWit, look, like it's it seems like only transaction malleability and you might be thinking in terms of, of you know, scaling the the throughput. But here's, you know, Schnorr signatures and uh, Mast and like all this whole laundry list of things. And, you know, of course, that list just gets longer and longer now that the idea is out there. And now that it's it's a real thing that that could be very interesting as well, like a, some kind of graph. Yeah. And and so after the research phase, like you kind of have like the proposal phase where uh, they're either putting together like a BIP or it's just it's not really, you know, a bit, but they're on the mailing list or whatever, uh, or in their actual pull request, trying to attract developer attention and review to what their what the the product of their research is. Um, and there's kind of there's this sense in the community that like, okay, well that means that the other developers are like gatekeepers because if it doesn't if they're not interested in reviewing whatever has been put forth. And so we see this with like drive chains with Paul Stork. So if, if the developers aren't interested in like looking at it and promoting it, then that means that it just kind of like stalls out and sits there. Um, and so th I don't think that there's like the solution to that is that, Hey, if you're interested in drive chains, then you should learn C plus plus and learn how to program and then learn how to be able to like, create your own uh, fork or, you know, like Shaolin Fry, you, you just uh, wing it on your own. Just do it. And and there is, a, there is a case where the developers didn't even like it, but it happened. So, you know, same thing could happen with any of the proposals. So get out there. Do stuff. Uh, this sounds like there, there's a lot of interesting things you could add to Bitcoin X. Yeah, for sure. Keeping to keep track. Of. Well, so this is kind of like a higher level thing because... Bitcoin X will, will look at uh, kind of on the pull request level, which I would argue is like kind of the third step after the developers have have kind of reviewed it and given like a concept act to the BIP or uh, to the, the mailing list thing where they're like, hey, you know, this is 
this is interesting. Let's uh, I'd, I'd be interested in reading more about it in your in your white paper or whatever. Um, and then so, for example, now this was not a consensus change. So but I think it illustrates the dynamic rather well, which is that Merch, who was a guest on our show, he actually did research on coin selection and then shared it mm-hmm. with the other developers. And they kind of came to the same conclusion as like, hey, this is good research. This would be a valuable addition to Bitcoin Core's wallet coin selection. And then he actually had someone else coded up for him because he his background is not C++. And so I think it was AJ who coded up, or no, sorry, I'm getting them confused again. It, it was Andrew Chow this time uh, who, who coded up the actual implementation of coin selection um, and submitted it as a pull request. Uh, and then after careful code review and a lot of testing and simulation, uh, then it got merged in. Um, so I think that it, it shows that like, Someone can put forth research and they don't even have to write the code themselves if it is compelling enough to address, uh, to attract the attention of uh, someone who is a C++ wizard, then they will implement it for you and get it through the review process and merged in. Yeah. So perhaps in that sense, just uh, need more uh, ways to make sure the kind of developers you want see your proposals. Well, the mailing list is one way. And then, you know, you can also put, you know, GitHub issues and stuff like that. Or perhaps there's there's a new interface that we haven't thought of yet. Well, a lot of them are on Twitter, too. But I, I think that there's just no substitute for having quality work. And so whether it's in the form of uh, just a research paper like Merch or actual code that people can look at, I think that what what gets people it's, people's attention is is the quality of the work, and then your the the work has to be like within a certain Overton window. So if it's like oh here's how to here's how to make uh, Bitcoin uh, you know be ideal for streaming Netflix movies, people are going to just it, no matter how much work you put into that white paper, it's not going to get a lot of attention, right. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, if we looked 20 years down the line, maybe Bitcoin will be at a place where something like that is actually a very interesting question. It just takes, you know, this is a very long project with a lot of capital and infrastructure that needs to be built in. Um, So, yeah, like it, it does also help to promote an idea that is good at today's margins. Yeah. And the last point I want to make is, that developers have their own projects that they're working on and they have a very scarce amount of time and they're trying to prioritize what they think is most important today. And so, for example, Peter Willa uh, had a pull request that was like an optimization of double shot 256. It shows that it's got, I think it was like a 5X improvement in and this has nothing to do with Bitcoin mining. This has to do with validation, um, but it yeah. it can have a significant performance improvement for Bitcoin full nodes. I hear he actually writes the code in calligraphy. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't even use a typewriter. Someone else transcribes it onto the computer. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's good for the developers to be focused on that 
rather than pie in the sky hypothetical ideas. Yeah, was that the one that someone came in and chastised him for his his choice of how he used his time? Yeah, they were like, uh, you shouldn't be focused on this processor. You should be spending your time on this new processor. And his response is like, I forget what it was, but it was basically like, well, look, like everyone's on this old processor. So, yeah, and I do what I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's open source. Like, hey, look, if you think I'm not prioritizing correctly, uh, please send in pull requests and help out. Write your own code. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we're, we're past an hour and I think we'll uh, cut off today's Q&A session. Uh, this was a lot of fun, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. I hope uh, we'll we'll share the the link again for the forum so people can ask us questions. It'd be great to do a lot more of these. Yeah, let's let's set it up on uh, noded.org, n-o-d-e-d.org. Uh, we'll we'll create a we can can we create like a page that has the form embedded in it? Yeah, yeah. Let's put it at uh, slash submit. There we go. Go to noted.org slash submit. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be a link on the homepage as well. Yeah. And that way you can uh, add your question. Now, granted, it might be years before we get to your question because we we got through 16 questions and there's uh, another 50. So uh, and each of these questions, like they, they could take up a very long time. Hey, well, just if you if you want to get into the scarce block space, add a transaction fee. Yeah. If you want to get into the scarce, uh, you know, noted time. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, actually, <laughs> if you if you contribute to the noted podcast and you include your transaction ID with your question, you will get prioritized. I promise. If you're the first person to give that transaction ID. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Now we've got a bit of a problem there. Uh, just make sure you send submit your question within a very small period of time after your transaction. <laughs> uh otherwise it'll be very suspect and if if i catch you cheating i, I will i will make sure your answer your question never gets answered <laughs> all right this is fun talk to you later michael all right you have a good one